Hello and welcome to Talking TBIs. Join me as I discuss what's new in traumatic brain injury research and highlight current problems in TBI diagnoses. This series will focus on the use of serum biomarker tests for detection of brain injury and potential changes in practice to come. This is Amalia here, and today I will be talking about new research in the field of biomarkers for TBI detection and prognosis. So there are numerous biomarkers out there being studied, so I can't cover them all here today. So there's three that I'm going to discuss, S100B, GFAP, and UCHL1. GFAP is glial fibrillary acidic protein, and UCHL1 is ubiquitin C-terminal hydrolase L1. Big words. All right, let's get started. So I'll start with S100B, which is a central nervous system protein found primarily on astrocytes in cerebral spinal fluid. It's also found in chondrocytes and adipocytes throughout the body, but in much smaller concentrations. But this fact alone, that it's not CNS-specific, diminishes its diagnostic ability somewhat. Two studies that I looked at, one by Betchel et al. and one by Welch et al., found that S100B had poor to adequate ability to correctly identify patients with and without brain injury. This was found by comparing levels of healthy controls to those with CT-identified brain injury and using the area under the curve statistic. I'm going to do my best at describing the area under the curve statistic, so here we go. The AUC looks at the accuracy of a diagnostic test. So an AUC of 0.5 is no better than a random chance, essentially 50-50, that the test is going to detect someone with the disease or without. The higher the AUC, the better. It can be thought of as the average sensitivity for all possible specificities and vice versa. Another way to think of it is that it's the probability that a randomly selected patient with the given condition will have a lab result that is more indicative of the condition than a randomly chosen patient without the condition. That was a lot. Hope that makes sense and it's not too confusing, but I will be talking about area under the curve to compare these three biomarkers throughout this episode, so I felt it was important to go over that first. So for reference, an area under the curve of 0.9 is excellent, 0.8 to 0.9 is very good, 0.7 to 0.8 is adequate, and below 0.7 is poor. The two studies I talked about earlier found the area under the curve for S100B levels correlating to CT positive brain injury to be 0.67 to 0.75. The Betchel et al. study also found that using different cutoff values, they found different sensitivities and specificities, Um, and at the higher of the two cutoff values, there were three CT-positive brain injuries showing a mixture of subarachnoid hemorrhages, subdural hematomas, and hemorrhagic contusions that would have been missed using S100B levels alone. Lastly, this study also found that S100B levels were higher in non-white patients, which is worth mentioning since it would not be applicable to the general population. So far, S100B does not seem to be the best biomarker to determine injured patients from healthy controls. However, elevated levels of S100B have been correlated with worse outcomes. One study by Frankel et al. found that a one-unit increase in the log of S100B levels increased the odds of unfavorable outcomes at six months post-injury by about 72.4% after controlling for variables. So essentially, this means the higher the S100B levels, greater chance of worse outcomes in the future. 
Another study was able to determine that a patient with higher levels of S100B displayed declines in memory, processing speed, and attention at three months post-injury. To further prove its prognostic ability, another study by Marchi et al. focused on concussions in football players and their corresponding S100B levels. These researchers found that S100B levels initially elevated, but then rapidly declined in players without brain injury. But the levels remained elevated in players with cumulative subconcussive injuries. So these researchers believed that the lingering elevated level of S100B was due to repeated blood-brain barrier disruption as well as an autoimmune response to the S100B levels over time. And they believe that this response can eventually lead to neurocognitive decline. So that was a lot of info. Let's summarize. S100B seems to have some conflicting data regarding its diagnostic ability, especially in non-white patients and those with polytrauma, since it's found in extracerebral cells. But on the other hand, S100B may have a role in determining recovery and prognosis in patients with diagnosed brain injury. Clinically, S100B levels may have a role in pre- and post-game screening or return-to-play tests for high-risk athletes, such as football players, hockey players, or other contact sport players. This research would need to be replicated and on a larger participant population before implementing this in real-world application. Another use for S100B could be to predict neurological recovery after brain injury, but again, more research is warranted to correlate these levels with um, qualitative markers like the one study did of memory processing speed or other measures of cognitive function. So that's S100B. Now let's move on to our next biomarker of interest. Glial fibrillary acidic protein, or GFAP, is a central nervous system protein also found on astrocytes. A great thing about GFAP is it's not found in extracerebral cells, so already doing a little better than S100B. Researchers used the area under the curve statistic to signify GFAP's detection ability of brain injury versus healthy controls by comparing the GFAP levels to a patient's CT scan and found this parameter to be 0.79 to 0.97 across three studies. This is a much higher area under the curve than that of S100B and showed better ability to differentiate patients with and without brain injury. A study by McMahon et al. looked specifically at GFAP levels in non-trauma TBI patients and trauma TBI patients, and found the area under the curve for that parameter to be 0.73 to 0.94. This is really important because patients who present to the emergency department will not always present with isolated head injury, and a good biomarker is going to be able to detect head injury in both trauma and non-trauma patients. This study also compared GFAP's ability to predict positive and negative CT scans to the American College of Emergency Physicians and Centers for Disease Control Guidelines, or ACEP-CDC, for imaging a patient with suspected TBI. The GFAP levels, based on their study, had an accuracy of 81% for predicting CT-positive versus negative brain injury, and the ACEP-CDC imaging guidelines yielded about a 65% accuracy. So with this study, GFAP levels outperformed a known imaging guideline. In terms of prognostic ability, GFAP levels may not be the answer. 
One study looked at the trend of GFAP levels over time, and they measured levels at 24 hours post-injury, 30 days, and 90 days post-injury. They found that GFAP levels were highest in the first 24 hours post-injury and then declined shortly thereafter. This is going to be important in terms of determining which biomarkers are important at which time points. So the fact that GFAP peaks in 24 hours and then declines shows that it may be better in terms of diagnosis versus prognosis. This same study looked at GFAP levels at day 0, 30, and 90 post-injury between mild and moderate and severe TBI patients and found no significant difference in GFAP levels at each time point. So in other words, GFAP would not be an accurate predictor of mild versus moderate severe TBI patients at any time point post-injury. To reiterate its detection ability, though, the researchers did find a statistically significant difference in GFAP levels between TBI and non-TBI patients at each time point post-injury. So let's summarize GFAP. GFAP was a better predictor of brain injury than a currently accepted imaging guideline, and with this, these researchers extrapolated that GFAP levels could reduce the necessity for imaging in 12 out of 100 patients without missing any injuries. So this means that GFAP levels could reduce unnecessary imaging by about 12% accurately. GFAP seems to have potential to reduce imaging and accurately predict brain injury on CT with the right cutoff value. Its prognostic ability for neurocognitive decline is backed by some conflicting evidence at this point and requires more research with qualitative measures like quality of life, hindrance on activities of daily living, and so on. So that's GFAP. Now, the last protein I will talk about in depth is ubiquitin C-terminal hydrolase L1, which is a mouthful. So I'm going to call it UCHL1. This protein is an enzyme that's found mainly in ronal cytoplasm and comprises anywhere from 1 to 10% of proteins in the brain. The pathophysiology behind this biomarker is that UCHL1 is released from damaged neurons when brain injury occurs, and then from that, they leak into the bloodstream with the subsequent blood-brain barrier disruption. The research surrounding UCHL1's ability to correctly identify TBI patients from non-TBI patients is somewhat conflicting. One study found that it had a sensitivity of 100% and a specificity of 39%. And using this data, the researchers calculated that 83 of the 215 negative CT scans in their study could have been avoided without missing any intracranial injury. Um, Another study found that the area under the curve statistic was about 0.31 to 0.77, which is poor to adequate. However, another study looked at the same parameter and found their area under the curve to be 0.8, so this really requires more research to have a more concrete answer in its detection ability. There were two studies I looked at which showed increased risk of adverse outcomes with higher levels of UCHL1. However, one of these studies did not control for variables. Another study found that UCHL1 levels remained elevated only during the first 48 hours after injury, and they didn't provide any qualitative data on the correlation between UCHL1 levels and neurological function. So there's some conflicting data here as well. And 
more research is really warranted to figure out if there is any predictive ability here for a neurocognitive function. Of note, there was a study done by Bazarian et al. that used a combination of UCHL1 and GFAP levels. And this study uh, produced brain trauma indicator tests by Banyan Biomarkers, which has been FDA approved in 2018. So this combination test had excellent results. It had a sensitivity of 0.976 and a negative predictive value of 0.996 for predicting CT positive and negative results. Their analysis of patients with a GCS of 9 to 13 showed that the combined biomarker test had a sensitivity of 1 and a negative predictive value of 1. It showed the same levels for identifying patients with neurosurgically manageable lesions, but this data was extrapolated from a handful of patients that fell into those two categories, and so I think that data really needs to be replicated on a larger scale before we go using this test on patients with a GCS of 9. Um, they concluded that using this combined blood test, about a third of the patients in the mild category could have avoided a CT scan. And lastly, they found that patients with extracranial trauma did not um, affect the UCHL1 or GFAP levels. So that's great because it's more applicable to patients who present to the emergency room with other injuries going on. They also analyzed the two biomarkers against each other in a subset of patients and found that the combined test did outperform each individual biomarker, but just in regard to their primary outcome of high sensitivity and negative predictive value, the diagnostic ability of GFAP levels alone were able to effectively rule out CT-positive brain injury. So GFAP levels alone also performed amazing, but the um, combined test did outperform it. There really is so much research out there, and some of it is quite conflicting due to variable methods and construct validities of tests. So I tried to utilize studies that were done recently and in the U.S., although the Banyan biomarker research was done at multiple sites across the U.S. and Europe. So that's S100B, GFAP, UCHL1, and then the combined test. I will be back to discuss how these biomarker tests may impact clinical practice in the last episode, so stay tuned, keep talking TBIs, and I hope you learned something new. Thanks for listening. For show notes, episode links, and research included in this podcast, please visit www.talkingtbis.wordpress.com.